0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We've been uh, following Paul's argument in the first three chapters of Romans, spelling out for us the true picture of mankind. Not the picture that you read on the front pages of your paper, not the one that you hear in your classroom, not the one that your grandmother may have told you, but the real picture of mankind. The one that makes it clear where we stand with God and what kind of condition we are in. We often call it depravity. That's the theological term that's sometimes applied to our condition. It's the message that Paul is presenting here. It's the message of the Bible when it comes to every person born in this world. And you remember last week we kind of summarized this message That men and women are born into this world with every part of their being negatively affected by sin. Every part, whether it is body or spirit or mind, or we might even say physical, emotional, intellectual. So that there's no part of you that is untouched by sin. There's no part of you that is unmarred by sin and no part of you... That can be considered good. No part of you that can be considered pure. No part of you that can be considered worthy. And you remember that this is Paul's statement in Romans 3.12. That no one does good. Not even one. And so the message of this entire passage really is summarized that. There's no one who's good. There's no one who's worthy. There's no one who's pure. There's no one who's righteous. There's no one Who has anything that has any inherent value to God because of all of this? The impact of sin is so comprehensive, so pervasive, that's the state that we're in. Sometimes we simply call it total depravity. Total depravity. Not in the sense that you are totally as bad as you possibly could be, but in the sense that the, the impact of sin is comprehensive in your life. So that while you're not as bad as you could be, you're nowhere close to as good as you should be. You're nowhere as close to as good as you might have thought that you are, because every part of you has been tainted by this. It's not saying that people aren't moral. It's not saying that people don't live admirable lives from time to time. It's not saying that we don't admire and aspire to good things. That is really a a part of the fabric of who we are in the image of God. We're made in in a way that we still admire virtue to some extent. We still aspire to be what we consider to be good people. Paul even told us this back in Romans 2.14 that... That people without the law, Gentiles, he says, by nature do things that are written in the law. It is is sort of part of just our society and who we are, that people still strive for goodness. They still strive for virtue. But the message of the scripture is that even those virtues, even those uh, uh, efforts are themselves tainted. You say, what do you mean? We take something like love. Love, of course, is, is exalted in Scripture. We experience love. We show love. We demonstrate love. Just the kind of affection that a parent might have for a child, a child for his parent, a husband for a wife, and a wife for a husband. Those sort of family affections are some of the graces of life that we, that we experience, some of the goodness of God. And in many ways, they reflect the best of life. We, we know And we aspire to a kind of love that is wonderful and virtuous, but even that kind of love is affected by sin so that it can be skewed, it can be twisted, it can even become a kind of idol in your heart that keeps you from God. Jesus himself said it, if anyone loves his father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. Anyone loves his son and daughter more than me. He can't be my disciple. So you take even something that's good, something that's in our life, something that would be virtuous, and we realize that even those good things are tainted. They're marred. They are in some way impinged on by by sin. It comes into our life and affects every part of our being, our emotions, our mind, our body. You can go beyond just familial affections, you can go into the general sort of goodwill of society, the generosity, the virtue, the self-sacrifice, the stories that we have of heroes, of soldiers and teachers and leaders who inspire us. And we recognize that even in spite of these inspiring acts and inspiring stories, that many times that these people who are our heroes live personal lives of vanity and arrogance, Their motives are not always pure. They're certainly not for God. Their sacrifices are not consistent. They they don't necessarily make the kind of sacrifices that we celebrate on a day-to-day basis in all the little things of life. They're not so sacrificial as they are on the public stage or in the spotlight. In fact, many of our greatest heroes prove to be some of the most fallible and difficult people That you would ever encounter on an individual basis. Their lives are a string of broken relationships and broken promises and unkind acts toward those who are closest to them. Men and women may at times demonstrate a love for what is good, an aspiration for virtue. They might want what they think is good and what is beautiful. But none of that is an indication that they are inherently good. As one theologian says, mankind's delight in these things is limited to the finite and the material and is lost regarding the infinite and the eternal. It is not man's nature to aspire and long for what is eternally beautiful, was eternally good, what is eternally meaningful. He lives by sight and not by faith. He walks that way. And so while there might be some semblance of virtue and while you might construct in your mind some criteria by which you judge people and decide that they're good people, when the Bible speaks to the issue, it doesn't make that declaration because it's speaking from God's point of view. And you don't even have to really look that deeply Because the evidence is all around you. The evidence is all on the surface. Our sinfulness is evident in so many ways. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 3. This is where he's bringing us to to what is obvious, to what is evident, to what ought to be clear in front of every one of us. As G.K. Chesterton says one time, original sin is the one point of Christian theology that can easily be proved empirically. You may not be able to prove to people that that God exists. You may not be able to prove to them the resurrection of the bodily Christ. You may struggle in all those things. But you should have no problem proving to people that they are sinners, that they're selfish, that they're liars, that they're disloyal, that they're all the things that the Scripture says about us. The sinfulness of man is one of the clearest demonstrations of the truthfulness of Scripture that you'll ever find. It is extensive. It is universal. And that's Paul's point. He says in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. And with this sort of universal tone, he marches through the passage. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one no matter how you think of people, no matter how you think of yourself, this this is the truth of the matter. No one is good. This is the verdict of God. This is where everyone stands in their natural state. Now, Paul is showing that to us in these, these powerful evidences, these powerful testimonies, that he's really just pulling mostly out of Scripture, just quoting Scripture to us to show us the testimony of Scripture about ourselves. But we've been unfolding them last week, and and then of course today we'll get to more of these undeniable evidences of our sinful state that he's spelling out in these verses. Remember last week we looked at verses 10 through 12 when it speaks about our darkened hearts, which Paul presents with four quotations from psalm 14 and psalm 53 sort of just uh, mashed together but he began saying no one understands that speaks to the sinful or the effect of sin on our reasoning process it, our our reasoning our thinking is characterized by darkness it's characterized as ephesians four seventeen says by ignorance and it's not an innocent ignorance it is an ignorance that ephesians says is because of our hardened hearts it's not a lack of data, not a lack of information. It's the fact that we don't want the truth. We don't want to believe what the Bible says. We don't want to believe what God says. And so consequently, our hearts are darkened. We are resistant to the very things that make for sound thinking. And as a result of that, Paul says, no one therefore seeks for God. They go after so many other things, so many really idols, but they don't seek for God. They are convinced that following God, following the scripture is somehow an empty cause. It is a recipe for giving up freedom and giving up enjoyment and giving up fulfillment and all those things. They, they believe that because they don't understand. Thirdly, Paul says all have turned aside because they, they don't respect God's way. They don't believe in God's way. They don't understand God's way. They question and they look with skepticism on the Bible. What do they do? They turn to their own devices. They turn to their own pursuits. They turn to the accumulation of all this temporal stuff and uh, and to satisfaction from all these unsatisfying sources. And then fourthly, because of all of this, the Scripture declares that together men and women have become worthless. This is the This is the declaration of God. There's nothing of value within them. That's why whenever you hear Jesus talk about images of the last judgment, he talks about people just sort of being bound up like a bunch of sticks and thrown out on a fire. That is God's view of you. That is God's word about you. You are, you're darkened. You're wayward, you're rebellious, and because of all that, you are worthless in your natural state. You have no value to yourself, you're not much help to others, and you're of no value to God. Now, you may not have heard that before, you may not believe that, but that's what the Scripture says. You may have gone through life and people told you that you have some great worth and some great value, and they might have heard songs and Heard sermons about how you, know, you were so important to God that He did all of these things for you. Well, the Scripture declares otherwise. Sometimes we say this around our church, and I don't think people always understand what we mean when we say that as a church we try to maintain a high view of God and a low view of man. But when we say that, we don't mean that we don't love people. We don't mean that people aren't important to us. What we mean is that apart from Christ, that you, that your opinions, that your personal likes, dislikes, whatever, all that stuff, apart from Christ, that those things have no value. The value that Paul says that we have, the treasure that we have in earthen vessels is the excellency of the knowledge and power of Him. This is what brings value to our lives. It is Christ. But you're not born that way. You're born before God, not good. You're born before God, darkened in your understanding. You're born before God, unworthy and unvaluable. Good for nothing but to be thrown out. Secondly, Paul moves beyond the discussion of our darkened heart to our dishonorable speech. When he begins in verse 13, speaking about how our throat is an open grave, kind of like you walk up on a grave that's been dug up and you look down inside, what do you see? You see putrid, decaying, just stinky and filthy flesh. And he's saying that's that's what it is. You open up your mouth where all your words come from and what do you see? What do you smell? What comes out? What's the evidence of what's down inside from all of the angry speech, the spiteful speech, the harsh speech, the rude speech, the filthy, complaining, whining, grumbling, envious, boastful, arrogant, all that stuff that just pours out of our mouths all the time. Or as he goes on to say... They use their tongues to deceive, exaggerate, misrepresent, whatever it might be. They slander, make excuses. Verse 13, the venom of asp is under their lips. When they speak, it bites, it's poisonous, it's cutting, it's sharp. Or he says their mouth is full of curses in the sense that they just tear people down with their bitterness. And he says, "Just listen to your mouth, just listen to your lips. it'll tell you everything you need to know about your heart. This is where the truth is. this is where the evidence is it's in your speech, it's in your talk. Jesus himself had said it right? out of the heart the mouth speaks this is this is this is the evidence of what's in your heart. this is the evidence of where you're your life is. This is the evidence of your spiritual state. And if what's coming out of your heart is putrid and rotten and stinky and foul and filthy, it is because it's coming out of a stinky and rotten and foul and filthy and dead heart. Well, this morning we turn our attention to the third undeniable evidence of the sinful state that Paul presents for us, and that is our destroyed relationships, our destroyed relationships. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood and in their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they've not known. That's simply to say that the evidence of mankind is not an evidence of peace. Now, this should be one of the most obvious truths to anyone if they just Take a moment to turn on their TV or pop up their their browser or read in their newspaper, or honestly just sort of turn and look over their shoulder or whatever it might be that we are li- we are in a world of violence and animosity and aggression, whether or not it is on a national scale or an individual scale, whether or not it is It is a political or economic or whether or not it is verbal or physical. Whatever it is, we're in a world that is strewn with the debris of destroyed bodies and destroyed relationships. Paul Johnson, a popular historian, documents how in the last 100 years, we have seen by state or or governmental forces the untimely death through war and various means, the untimely death of 125 million people in 100 years. And he sets that alongside of the previous 4,000 years of record that we have and demonstrates that in the last 100 years, state or governmental forces have killed more people than the previous 4,000 years combined. We're in a deadly, deadly time. Ezekiel says of his own time, people of the land have practiced extortion, committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and the needy. They've extorted the sojourner without uh, justice. There is no goodness in the land. And we could say the same. People have, have come up with formulas to clock the kind of criminal activity and the kind of violent activity that takes place all around us. Someone has calculated that there is one murder every 22 minutes in our nation, one rape every five minutes, one armed robbery every 49 seconds, and one burglary every 10 seconds. We are in a violent society, and the evidence is all around us. That's not even to mention the 35 or 40 million babies that have been slaughtered in the womb since 1973. We are in a deadly, deadly time just, just from a, a state standpoint. But it isn't just that. It isn't just the state. It is all of the terrorist groups, all the independent drug gangs, all of the vigilantes, all of the general murders that are taking place around us. And then you could go beyond those physical acts of murder and abuse Jesus made it plain that those are simply the final iteration of what is abiding in all of our hearts. He says, you've heard that it was said that those, uh, from those of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother is liable of judgment. So you simply harbor anger in your heart and you're liable. You, you are essentially condemned before God because of this murderous intent as, uh, intent as Jesus says in Matthew 15 out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders it begins there it starts there it leads John Calvin to say this quote he who has merely refrained from shedding blood was not therefore avoided has not therefore avoided the crime of murder if you perpetuate anything by deed, if you plot anything by attempt, if you wish or plan anything contrary to the safety of a neighbor, you are considered guilty of murder. Again, unless you endeavor to look out for his safety and welfare according to your ability and opportunity, you are a violator of the law. So it's plain in Scripture whether by murder or by hatred. And if not by hatred, by neglect. We are far too quick to participate in the destruction of others. If you have any doubt, just turn around and look behind you. Not literally right now, but just in your life. (laughs) Ruin and misery, Paul says. That is our pathway. You look back through the years, you're forced... To face the pain of all the broken relationships, the misery of all the conflicts and the discord and the clashes and the division, the broken families, the, the, the anxieties at work, the divisions and bickering in the classroom and in the neighborhood and in the home. It just encroaches on us from so many corners. Man is born to trouble, Job said, like sparks fly up from a fire. I've been watching with curiosity this uh, sort of unfolding of events for the uh, World Summit of Nobel Peace Prize laureates. Did you know that we're supposed to host that in Atlanta? We were supposed to. The 30 living Nobel Peace laureates were, were to come to Atlanta to put their minds together to figure out how to solve the grand issues of peace around the world. The only problem is that the organizers couldn't get along with one another. So the mayor has canceled it. And I'm trying to think to myself, I mean, did did the reporters even hear what they're saying? I mean, it's, it's sad, but humorous. I mean these guys are supposed to come together and tell us how we're supposed to achieve peace in the world and they can't even get their own organizers to talk to one another? If that's the best hope we have, we're we're in bad shape and exactly that is the case. We're in bad shape. Our greatest peacemakers, our greatest leaders, they don't know the way to peace. As Paul says it here, the way of peace they have not known. He's not talking about inner peace. He's talking about your relationships. He's talking about how we deal with one another. He's talking about the evidence of your life. You want to know You want to know about your life. You want to know where you stand with God. You look around you and you see all of the broken and destroyed relationships that have come as a direct impact or an indirect impact or whatever it might be within your own life. You look at all the conflict. You, know, you recognize all the ways that you have not found peace. Peacemakers, they're the ones who are known as the children of God. But that's not the way for most. Fourthly, Paul gives another evidence of this sinful state, and that's simply our disregard for God. Just a general disregard for Him and His place and His authority in our life. Paul says there's no fear of God before their eyes. And this is ultimately man's problem, is that he, he's so darkened in his heart and corrupt in his speech and unpeaceful in his pathway, and it all really stems from the fact that, that he doesn't fear God. There's no regard, there's no respect for God's place as maker, as, as ruler, as king of kings and lord of lords, and ultimately as judge and arbiter in our lives, Psalm 36 pictures this in the heart of every unbeliever. Transgression, it says, speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. Because he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity will not be found out. So this is the nub of the matter that that the unbelieving heart sits there and lies to itself. It flatters itself that it's going to get away this time, that no one's going to find out this time. And the reason it does that is because what? Because there's no fear of God. Because he hasn't generated or he doesn't have within him that fear of God. Proverbs sixteen six: the fear of God turns one away from evil. It turns people away from evil. And if you don't have it, you have lost a grand impediment to a wayward pathway. Psalm 910, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You'll never have wisdom unless you have the fear of the Lord. You'll never count yourself wise unless you have it. You might say, well, I don't want a God that I fear. I mean, I don't want to be in a relationship where I'm always fearful. I don't want a God that I always have to be afraid of. I don't want the God of the scary Sunday school stories or the haunted house or whatever it might be. I want a God who is just all love and affirmation. You just sort of float through life on a river of comfort and ease. That's the kind of God I want. That's the kind of God I want to sing about. I want to banish all that old thought about some terrorizing God. I would encourage you not to do that. Because if you do that, Scripture says you don't have a pathway to wisdom. Listen, I want to enjoy God. I want to have the benefits and the joys of God. It's kind of like I want to enjoy water. I like to go boating. I like to go skiing. I like to go fishing. I like to do all those things. I'll guarantee you, when I go near the water, I better have a healthy fear of what it can do to me. If I want to have any enjoyment. I want to enjoy lights, I want to enjoy air conditioning. But if I don't understand the dangers of electricity, then those very things that could bring me blessing will bring me great harm. I like to fly in planes, I like to go places, I like to 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 do things, climb things, but if I don't have a healthy fear of heights, then I may venture beyond the safe boundaries in my enjoyment of some of those things and I might face the consequences. Listen, having a fear of God doesn't mean that you don't experience the benefits and the joys, but it just means that you understand the power. You understand the place of God. You understand what He is capable and what He would do to someone who rebels against Him. And it's within that boundary of fear that you are able to to enjoy and relish All of the fellowship and all the joys and all the benefits of God. As C.S. Lewis famously said about Christ, He's good, but He's not safe. He's good, but He's not safe. That's the God we worship. We come to Him and we're compelled by His power, by His holiness, by His position, to come with the right kind of reverence and respect and humility as we come to fellowship and follow his ways. The Bible says when you understand that, you depart from evil. But people who are prone to deny that, people who want to live as if that's not true, people who don't like to sit around and ponder the fright of standing before a God, people who want to construct a worldview, or a God who is all love and all acceptance and all forgiveness and no judgment and no condemnation and and no consequences. People who want to do that, people who refuse to construct a life of fear, they soon find themselves what? Drowning in their sin, falling from their pride, zapped, fried, we would say, by the consequences of their wayward life because they have no respect for God. This is the world we live in. This may be you. You, you, may, you may be here today as some anomaly or some favor to a relative or some friend invited you or maybe you come because someone makes you come every week. But, but once you get out of here, they, there's no thought about God. There's no fear of God. There's no idea about you standing before him and being afraid of anything. You don't ponder the fear of God. The scripture says that's an evidence, a frightful evidence of where you stand in your heart. You disregard God. You disregard his place. And of course, the greatest consequence of that will be on the day of accountability. And that's Paul's really final evidence, if you will, the clearest and the final evidence of our sinful state will be given on that day. He says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So he's sort of drawing out the application for us here and we might assume that those rebellious people and those pagan people and those people who have just you know, no morals in their life, we might assume that they would stand accountable to God and face some sort of punishment. But Paul's saying it's not just them, but it's those who are under the law. And he's really extracting from the fact that everything he just quoted came from where? It came from the law. It came from the Bible. It was written to people who read the Bible. As a matter of fact, Many of the Psalms that he quotes are actually directed not at Gentiles, but at Jews. So that you remember back in verse 9, the whole idea behind this is this question, are we Jews any better off? And Paul's answer there in verse 9 is no, not at all. You're no better off because you've heard the Bible. You're no better off because you've been religious. You're no better off because you've been under the law. You're no better off than anyone because those who are under law, guess what? They're judged by the law. And when you measure what the law says and you measure what the standards are, when you measure even these basic, fundamental things that Paul has already shared with us here, what is the final verdict? Paul says, every mouth is stopped. You stand before God, there's not a word you will have as God brings out every indictment, every failure, every sin, every accusation, everything in your life is brought forward on this day of accountability. You remember in chapter 2, verse 16, Paul even says the secrets of your heart. So it isn't just your deeds. It's all of those It's all of those murderous thoughts, all of those lustful thoughts, all of those envious thoughts, all of those greedy thoughts. All of your self-centered life laid bare. And it will be so overwhelming that there will be no defense, there will be no word, there will be no, no... Come back, no excuse for your lack of understanding, for your hardness of heart, for your for your uh, corrupt speech, for all of your animosity towards others, for all of your defiance and disregard for God. There will be nothing that you can say against all the evidence. It's a fearful scene. A fearful scene, and you might think, well... But I'm trying, trying to be my best. God will recognize that. No, He won't. He makes it clear the whole world will be accountable. The whole world will be judged, and every one of them will stand under the verdict that Paul has already shared. There is none righteous, not even one. Because you'll notice in verse 20, not even the one who follows the law is justified. As Paul says there, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You might be trying. You might have learned some moral principles that you're trying to follow in your life. But the problem is that those moral principles that you're trying to follow, you're failing. And so those moral principles wind up being not a help, but an indictment. Someone has compared the law to a mirror, right? You stand... You hold the mirror up to look at yourself and you recognize all the disheveled hair and all the smudges on your face and stuff like that. But you're not supposed to take the mirror and start wiping your face with it or combing your hair. That's all the law does for you. All it does is show you how rotten you are. And it can do nothing to fix you. It can do nothing to make you right can do nothing to justify you before God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, count iniquities, who could stand before you? God, if you're really going to hold us accountable, if you're really going to notate all the ways we fail, if that's really going to happen, nobody's going to be able to stand. Nobody's going to be able to stand through that. But listen, that's exactly what the Bible says will happen. That's exactly what the Scripture says will happen. You'll be held accountable and the law will do you no good and your works will do you no good and your efforts will do you no good because there's too much evidence against you. The good news is it's not the end of the story. It's not even the end of the chapter because verse 21 says there is another way to stand before God. There's another pathway that has been manifested. It's not a pathway of your sinfulness. It's a pathway of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. A righteousness, he says in verse 22, which is through faith. So this is the picture that the Bible wants you to understand. That that everything you read about, about your sin and about your failure... Galatians 3 says, all of that is intended to imprison you. God wants you to understand how bad things are because that's supposed to drive you to the point where it says the promise by faith might be given to those who believe. You say, well, what's the promise by faith? Well, it's the righteousness of God. It is the fact that whenever you receive Christ by faith, or we sometimes say, when you place your faith in Christ, that all those sinful deeds that you have that indict you before God, every one of them is not only wiped away, but you receive a, a, a righteousness, a purity that's not your own. You receive a righteousness to stand before God that, that eliminates all accusation, that removes all all judgment that makes you perfectly acceptable to God because it's the righteousness that he has. It's his own righteousness, and he covers us with it or he fills us with it or however you want to talk about it. He presents us to himself as completely righteous, not based on what you do, but based on what he is. Scripture says we receive that as a free gift by faith. And the pathway to that faith, the Scripture tells us, is confession, it is repentance. It is saying to God and agreeing with God exactly who you are. You are filthy, you are no good, you are unworthy to stand before Him. And it's also confessing to Him your belief in the Savior, that Jesus Christ has been given so that you can have a righteousness that you could never have on your own. Our encouragement to you today is that you wouldn't leave here today without placing your faith in Christ. That when we close in word of prayer here in a moment, if you don't know Christ, that you would find me, that you'd find one of our elders, one of our Sunday school teachers. Pull us aside. We'd love to have the opportunity to share with you from the Scripture exactly how you can receive this gift. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word, a prayer, and a song. Father, we're grateful this morning for these reminders and the clarity with which you speak to our life. It is indicting. It is dark and black and hopeless in ourselves. But Lord, we needed that to eradicate all of the false hope, to knock out from under us the false legs on which we stand, so that when we stand before you, that we can stand on solid ground, on the ground of the Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, so we, we're grateful for these words, the words of truth, words of clarity about us and about our world and about our life, just as we're grateful for a Savior. We pray that people who are here today would hear the gospel, that they would believe, that they would trust and be redeemed. We pray in Christ's name.